are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont College. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with Paul Kendrick. Paul and his father Stephen's recent book, Nine Days, The Race to Save Martin Luther King Jr.'s Life and Win the 1960 Election, details King's imprisonment in October 1960 during the Atlanta sit-ins and the effects that his arrest had on the 1960 presidential election. Reverend Otis Moss Jr., who took part in the sit-ins, calls Nine Days an urgent, relevant, and historically accurate book. Kendrick teaches at National Lewis University in Chicago. He serves as the executive director of Rest About Rising, and he served in President Barack Obama's White House Presidential Personnel Office. Today, we will talk with him about nine days, Lillian Smith's connection to the events in October 1960, and more. Thank you for joining me today, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for all you do to spread history, to help us learn from Lillian Smith and from the history of the South and of our country. Yeah, and thank you for, for this book, Nine Days, because at its core, this book focuses on nine days from October 19th to October 27th, 1960. And Lillian Smith had a role in this, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But before we do that, can you briefly tell our listeners about the importance of these nine days, what led up to them, and their impact not just on the presidential election, but on the civil rights movement as a whole? It's not in days that really shaped the world that we live in today, but it's a really exciting, dramatic story because you have a extremely close presidential election that was hanging in the balance and determined by the events of these days. And you also uh, have a young Dr. King's life at stake. And what he goes through in these nine days is really key for how he was able to go on to make national change. But he had to go through this experience of his first imprisonment where he really stared down death. And so the story It comes about because of brave black Atlanta college students who, you know, most of whom were 18 and 19 and, and, uh, you know, some of them just got to campus for the first time and, and they get involved in this sit-in movement as part of the Atlanta student movement uh, because they want to make people confront the issue of racial inequality and they want to force desegregation in Atlanta. And Dr. King had just moved home to Atlanta from Montgomery, and he uh, was kind of searching for how he was going to translate the early success he'd had there into, uh, you know, achieving civil rights legislation and, and, and desegregation and equality in America. And these students who, who knew him well, and, and he was kind of a mentor to, and he had grown up with some of them, they really pressured King to go to jail with them because they were going to do a sit-in three weeks before the 1960 election uh, to really force these presidential candidates to have to talk about their issues and prioritize it when the candidates had been happy to really uh, not engage on that issue a lot. And so they, and we'll talk about Lillian Smith's connection to this, but but they uh, go to jail from a sit-in around downtown Atlanta, especially at Rich's department store, which is where King is arrested. Uh, But 
pretty soon, and we'll, we'll talk about why, King is ultimately sent to Reedsville State Prison with a four-month sentence, and his family thinks, and, and with in a well-grounded sense, because we found a lot of evidence of, of Black men being killed at Reedsville, uh, that King was not going to survive this imprisonment. And so then the story is also about the Kennedy and Nixon campaigns, about a trio, an interracial team that was working on civil rights for the Kennedy campaign, and how they uh, really risked the campaign uh, to start an unsanctioned intervention into helping get King out of jail, and how on the Republican side, Black advisors were really pushing Nixon to act, and uh, because Nixon was the one who had been a friend to King, the Kings were planning to vote Republican as much of Black Atlanta would have, uh, or all actually most actually did, uh, but not the King family based on what happens in these nine days. And so, at a moment when the Black vote was up for grabs, where you know Black voters were might split 50-50, we're looking for who was really going to act on their the issues they wanted to see change on. Uh, it's about how Kennedy ultimately uh, does show political courage and uh, in, in the calls he makes to Coretta King and, and Bobby King calling the judge who had sentenced Martin Luther King, although you learn in the book about all the fascinating back channels with Georgia politicians that led to that. And then how this team would then go rogue one more time uh, to, uh, without permission, do a, a very uh, daring way of sharing the story of what happened uh, to the Black community without white voters focusing in on it and to help bring about the, the shift in, in Black votes that, um, you know, again, gives us the political parties we have today and, and, and had allowed Black voters to really see their power in, in choosing a president and winning in a number of states all around the country were decided so, so narrowly. So Black voters really made the difference for Kennedy. So, you know, it's a story that I think, you know, you have to to understand how the king that we remember became that leader. This was a story that Atlanta student movement veterans helped us tell from those jail cells and, and what King faced down in these harrowing days to determine the future course of the civil rights movement. But I think it's a it's an inspiring story to learn from these students and how uh, they risk their lives to really make Americans grapple with this, this question of racial inequality uh, so that change could be brought about and uh and but you know so that's the activists but then also how uh, we can get our our politicians uh to to act with decency as kennedy ultimately does and there's a lot there that you said and one of the fascinating things i think i kind of knew this before was that nixon was more the pro-civil rights kind of candidate and kennedy didn't really Mm -hmm. do much you know up until about this point he was just kind of like Mm -hmm. pushing it to the side or whatever but now the way we think about these two men historically is that Kennedy is pushing forth the civil rights bills, of course, and then Nixon is war on drugs and law and order and all of that. Mm-hmm. And then I forgot the exact quote, you may remember it, but what, what did King say about Nixon or somebody said about Nixon that, you know, if he's telling the truth, it's good, but if he's not, he's basically a good liar and woe to us all, <laughs> essentially. So Nixon had really befriended King and uh, they had met in Ghana. King had visited Nixon uh, at his office in Washington, had had given his view of you know what, what they should do on civil rights legislation in 1957. So King was really impressed by this vice president who who really kind of seemed to seek him out as a friend when 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 King nearly died in, in Harlem with, with um, uh, mentally 
a troubled woman stabbed him. You know, Nixon is, is is writing to him, and so so Nixon had built up this goodwill. Daddy King was a big Republican, was holding you know part of Republican kind of endorsement rallies. So so that was the stage that was set where Nixon could have really seized what he had worked to build uh, in terms of getting over 50% of the black vote. And that's what his advisors, Jackie Robinson and Eisenhower, black White House staffer, the first black White House staffer in history, uh, E. Frederick Morrow, that's what they're really pushing for. That's their vision that the GOP will be the party of civil rights and and uh, they'll, they'll, they'll help Dr. King get out of jail because it's, you know, Democrats in Georgia that sentenced him. Um, but that's not how things played out. But it's an amazing quote. I want to read it. Uh, Nixon, uh, in 1958, King said in a letter uh, to a, a Nixon biographer who had written to him, he said, finally, I would say that Nixon has a genius for convincing one that he is sincere. When you're close to Nixon, he almost disarms you with his apparent sincerity. And so I would conclude by saying that if Richard Nixon is not sincere, he's the most dangerous man in America. <laughs> it's just like, wow, you know, King, you know, he really, he really liked Nixon a lot, but he, but he, he could sense there was a, there was some opportunism there. There was a, you know, or it just would be really dangerous if, you know, the relationship they had been forming, uh, if, it, you know, if that was, uh, there was <laughs> something less sincere to it. We see that play out, of course, with the Southern strategy, like I said, and other stuff yeah. too. So it's really kind of a fascinating, I would say not just, I mean, the focus is on King, importantly so, but, but it's a fascinating kind of look at kind of that shift in the moment politically, which, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still digging into more too, but there's a lot in nine days. And I've talked to you before that you and your dad couldn't add, basically. There's more that you wanted mm-hmm. to add. And part of that, as we talked, was Lillian and Smith's connection with King, which started in 1956 after the bus boycotts, when, or maybe even 55, when Smith wrote to King. So you mentioned Smith's connection to King, and specifically the connection when he was transferred or released from Fulton County Jail, which is where they were arrested for the sit-ins, and transferred to DeKalb County. And he was transferred to DeKalb County because he violated his probation, which stemmed from a traffic stop in the spring. And King didn't know, even though he was on probation, they, him and his dad had paid the fine the next day and they had no clue he was on probation. And this, of course, leads him to go into Reedsville. So can you talk some about this incident, what he was on probation for and its, mm-hmm. its role within those nine days? Yeah. So it was May 4th, he's uh, driving his friend of the movement, Lillian Smith, to her cancer treatment uh, to the, and they were near Emory uh, with the the hospital uh, that way. And he's pulled over and, and and Lillian Smith in her uh, account, you know, she, she was, you know, totally clear, totally certain what had happened that, you know, he was seen, you know, driving a white woman, and uh, you know, and an officer saw that and profiled them because of it. And so uh, the officer uh, tickets them because, and but the, the 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 ticket for King was because he still had his Alabama license. He hadn't. He had just moved back, so he hadn't gotten a Georgia one yet. You know, shouldn't be a big deal. But you know, because he is a black man, he 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 gets this ticket, and then you know, a few months later, he goes before the judge in DeKalb and at Judge Oscar Mitchell. And uh, like you said, he doesn't understand that he, he thinks I paid the ticket and then everything's fine coming out of that. But he was actually 
now on probation for this, you know, maximum possible interpretation of what a statute for not having, you know, your in-state license could be. And, uh, and so that's going to be used by the judge once King was arrested for the sit-in in in Atlanta. And, and, and he is just really shocked. And, you know, Lonnie King, um, the, the Atlanta student movement leader who, you know, goes to jail with him and talks about the surprise, you know, that he could be after a few days when the, the rest of the students are let out of the Fulton County jail, that DeKalb could take custody of him, that they could have this hearing and that the judge could sentence him to four months, <laughs> you know, on a chain gang in, in rural Georgia, and so the, the, the worry and the guilt from all those that love King um, and that it, it becomes a national story is profound. But, you know, I think Lillian Smith, she, she really saw something so great in King um, at a time where it may seem obvious to us now, but there were not many <laughs> white supporters of him, that, 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 you know, especially in the, in the South that moment. And, and he was just an emerging leader. I mean, he... Uh, was struggling to build uh, a movement. We, we, we could might imagine it now of like, you know, King just emerges and it's just, you know, he's just a superstar. No, that's not how it happened. The Montgomery bus boycott happened. And then, you know, four years on, he was really still trying to figure out how he was going to do what he did in Montgomery to America, how there would be a national movement. But, but Lillian Smith mentioned letters you know, believing he was the Gandhi for America, you know, that he was going to make this national change. And so she was just a, a, a real supporter. She worried sometimes that uh, King's father, Daddy King, who was such a strong personality, had too much of an influence on him, which is kind of relevant to these nine days because Daddy King really did not want Dr. King to go to jail in Atlanta, didn't want him to disrupt things in Atlanta. But, 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 Dr. King ultimately listened to the students and did so. Um, but yeah, Lillian Smith thought the world of him and then was uh, you know, writing to Riches and say, I'm going to you know, cancel my card um, if you don't drop these charges against my friend, which was, you know, really shows being able to, you know, use the, the, the power you have for something good against injustice, uh, that she was really willing to do that uh, for her friend. You mentioned her saying that about, you know, cancel my credit card, all this stuff too. She actually called Coretta too. She talks, she talks to Marvin Rich, who was CORE's communications director. And he, in her letter to him on October 20th, 1960, she said, you know, I called Coretta and talked, I talked to Coretta and, and told her and everything. And we kind of comforted her and spoke with her. She was very much connected with King and, and kind of the things that when I started learning about your book, I never put the dates together. And one of the things that I found out about, you know, I was looking back at her work, she delivered her speech, Are We Still Buying a New World with All Confederate Bills, on October 16, 1960, at Mount Moriah Baptist Church to students who would take place, who would take part in that sit-in. So probably that week training that you mentioned in the book, right, or the weekend training. And this was, of course, a follow-up to an essay she wrote in the 1940s in South Today, the journal that her and Paula Snelling published, which was called, you know, We're Buying a New World with um, All Confederate Bills, basically. And then she asked this question, we still buy it. But she gave this speech to members of the regional students nonviolent movement, which would become SNCC, at Mount Moriah. Um, Reverend Otis Moss Jr. was there. He talks about that speech and how Jacob's documentary breaking the, sci- the silence and others. Uh, Dr. King probably wasn't there. 
but it is perhaps one of the most powerful speeches he delivered. And I always go back to it for various reasons. But looking back at it today and thinking about your book, I think about this because she begins by telling those gathered, I regret that there are so few Southern white students as yet working side by side with you. And when we think of white students involved in civil rights, we think of whites coming from the North, right? Mm. I am sorry they have not yet realized that segregation is their enemy also, something that she talks about all throughout her work, the effects of racism and segregation on the white psyche and whites as well as blacks. That it harms their minds and souls as much as it does yours, that it blocks their freedom and their future as severely as it does yours. And in nine days, you mentioned white students, such as, such as Richard Ramsey and Constance Curry, who took part in the sit-ins and more. So each of them played a different role. And you also talk about other students, black students who, because of what their parents would say, their parents may have supported the movement, right? They didn't want to get arrested. So they took mm -hmm. different roles, but then, you know, kind of as observers or different things within the sit-ins. But with these white students, say Richard Ramsey and Constance Curry, you know, can you talk about them some or just other white students mm -hmm. who are involved? Because Ramsey, you know, goes to jail and he refuses to be bailed out too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. His account of the nine days was, um, I was uh, really blown away to find it was in the Southern uh, Regional Council microfilm papers. And he was a student from North Carolina who had come down for the SNCC conference and, and he hears about the sit-in that's being planned and he decides he has to be part of it. Um, and he is a arrested. Uh, he was the only white student on the side of the, the civil rights protesters that was arrested that week. And he, uh, the, the, the cops are really puzzled by him. <laughs> they're like, ask, they separate him out and they're like asking these questions like, why are you here? Why are you doing this? And, um, and, uh, and you know, he, he goes to jail and along with you know, more than 50 uh, black college students on October 19th um, and uh, or more than 50 black protesters. And, um, and then after he is let out, he's at a meeting with, when, once the students are, are released, he's at a meeting and people ask him to stand up and give him an applause. And he feels almost uncomfortable that, you know, he, he was just doing what was right. And, uh, you know, I couldn't find anything else about him of what happened to him the rest of his life. Uh, I, you know, tried to search high and low on Google. So if anyone knows what it became of Richard Ramsey, I'd love to know, but it, but it was a really moving account that's in the Southern Regional Council papers uh, because he, he submitted it afterwards. It was like, you know, he wrote like a, a page or two about it. And then Connie Curry, uh, who sadly passed away last year, um, was so wonderful to talk to. And so she, uh, Ella Baker, was a mentor of hers. And Constance Curry talked about how she went to some of these other uh, white, predominantly white schools in Atlanta to try to recruit other white people to be part of the movement. And, and no one took her up on it, but I really respect that she kept showing up and, and she was determined to play whatever role was valuable that she could in the civil rights movement. And so, you know, she was at the founding of SNCC conference in North Carolina um, officially and was, uh, you know, working on organizing uh, this you know network of, of college students. And on October 19th, the sit-in at Riches, her role was to be an observer that people 
that you know bystanders would not know was actually part of the movement because that would then allow her uh, unsuspected to kind of report out what's happening to reporters and and you know other leaders in the movement. Um, but she had a really terrifying moment where, as as Dr. King and and Lonnie King and and um, two of the the women they were arrested with, Blondie Norbert and, and Marilyn Price, are being led away from the Magnolia Tea Room towards the elevator and riches to be taken to the police station. Connie Curry notices the head of the local Ku Klux Klan. And she realizes that if, you know, Lonnie and Dr. King are like, oh, hey, Connie, because, you know, she's a friend of theirs, then she would be marked for, you know, the, the like, you know, collaboration with the, these black activists and, and her life from then that day forward would be imperiled. But um, but she is so profoundly relieved that Dr. King and Lonnie, you know, they're they're one step ahead and they're so thoughtful that they just walk right by her like they've never met because they had already figured out the situation. And so. So when she told me that story and shared a write up of it uh, with me, I, you know, I, I just thought it was such an important model of uh, being willing to take risks for civil rights, being willing to do what's uncomfortable, uh, what's outside of one's comfort zone. And I, and I think, you know, uh, as, as a white person today, like that, you know, that, that, that is, there are moments when we just really uh, need to speak up and find a way to be, you know, valuable and useful within uh, movements for equality and, and justice. And uh, so I thought, you know, Connie Curry and, and Ramsey and, and then one of the main characters of the book on the Kennedy campaign, uh, someone named Harris Wofford, who was kind of a, a white advisor to King. He had befriended King in the late fifties because they were both passionate about Gandhi and, and bringing these concepts to America to, to change uh, our caste system. And, and he had written letters to King and, and kind of become a friend and played a really useful part in the movement, raising money for King to go to India and, and uh, working with King on his, on um, providing uh, writing for him. And so, uh, but then Harris found himself working on the Kennedy campaign. So when his friend is arrested, uh, that's what kind of catalyzes the Kennedy campaign intervention because Harris, uh, you know, is, will, will risk his role on the campaign and and career in politics and and the campaign itself to get involved, to help get King out. So, you know, it's, it's black college students like, like uh, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss, who, you know, made all of this happen. And they're definitely the center of the book, but I think these are some yeah really remarkable characters that we can be in. I think, you know, no matter who you are, what background you are, like there, there's characters you can find yourself in to learn from in this book, whether you're an activist, whether you're in politics, whether you're a behind the scenes person, whether you're, you know, out in the streets person, black, white, whoever, like th- there are a lot of different characters that are faced with challenging situations and who, who you know, make a choice and often to take action in this book. Um, and Nixon makes the opposite choice, but, you know, we, we see that that change really happens when we do the things that are uncomfortable, but but um, so, and, and then certainly Lillian Smith, obviously, and, you know, being an ally to King, speaking up for him and just for civil rights throughout her career uh, to a lot of cost uh, to her in doing so. But, you know, she, she did what was, what was right there. And so, um, so a lot of fascinating characters and that's amazing that Dr. That Reverend Moss was, was there at that speech. He uh, is such an unbelievable American hero and such a kind man. Uh, we did an event with him uh, with the Atlanta 
History Center talking about uh, these memories and his you know, memories are, uh, are throughout this book. He was just such um, a, um, I just can't, you know, can't thank him enough for his, <clears throat> you know, support and assistance and how he's become a friend in, in this. And, and, uh, and like, you know, Lonnie King had connected us to, to Reverend Moss um, and, and Lonnie became a friend in, in helping us tell this story, but it, you know, it was heartbreaking when he passed away two years ago. Um, but, uh, but Reverend Moss and some other uh, Atlanta student movement veterans, uh, thankfully are with us. And I loved recording their stories and, and uh, getting them into this book for, you know, for you, the reader, for and for posterity. And there's a lot that you said that, that stood out to me there talking about Curry and Ramsey and, and Wofford. One thing that you point out that Curry did was she was there as an observer to be able to talk to reporters. Mm-hmm. And thinking back about what Lonnie King wanted and the others wanted this to be is actually a newsworthy event to get, you know, Nixon and Kennedy to talk about these issues, right? Yeah. Which they eventually did. And then, but the news, as you point out, didn't cover it. So like, it was like on page 39 mm-hmm. of the New York Times, mm-hmm. and it was like pushback everywhere else. They didn't start covering it until a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But what kind of stood out with what you're talking about too, is that, you know, whatever role was valuable to the movement, Curry said that she would do. Lillian Smith was the same way. She didn't mm-hmm. march, she didn't mm-hmm. do these things, but she used what she had and what she knew she could do to add it to the movement, right? Her writing to Rich and basically being mm. like, you know, pull my account, you know, if you don't do this. Her writing to the mayor, I think. Her writing to other people mm-hmm. in the community, not just within this within this event, but in others as well, too. Yeah. And that leads me to, you know, Smith agreed with the student's decision to refuse bail. You know, on October 20th, 1960, she wrote, like I said, to Marvin Rich, who was CORE's communications director. She wrote to him, quote, all have refused bail which I personally think is the way it should be done when it is possible. Mm-hmm. And her position didn't change. You know, in mm-hmm. fact, when I was looking around at, at the camp, I found some pamphlets. And one of the pamphlets I'm about to quote from, she, she wrote the introduction for. It's a pamphlet called Jailed In. And this pamphlet was written by Thomas uh, Gaithier, who was a Rock Hill, South Carolina. Him and some other students were arrested, quote, for the crime of sitting in at Macquarie's lunch counter. And all of them refused bail. And Gaithier serves 30 days on the chain gang, and he talks about refusing bail. And in her introduction, this is what she writes. It's a long paragraph, but she says, it happened because we, the most free nation on earth, content ourselves with the phrase instead of making it into a living fact. We who pride ourselves on independence are afraid of civil dissent. We have forgot the person's moral right to dissent when authority does wrong. We have forgot his right to refuse to observe a law when that law is a travesty of justice. We fail to understand his grave respect to the meaning of law when he willingly goes to jail after having broken an unjust law. So she's pointing out, of course, that they're being arrested for unjust laws, as we know. Mm. Can you talk about kind of the jail and movement? It wasn't termed the jail and movement when King and others were, were done. And it was actually occurred before this too. This was this wasn't the first time this occurred. So you can tell about the importance of that. Mm. Yeah, well, it was so novel. It was so radical to people, the idea of going to jail. And it was so dangerous that we were going, you know, for a lot of Black Americans seeing Black activists do this, they they couldn't believe it, that you you would willingly go into these Southern jails uh, and, and risk your life. And so these students, you know, yeah, they had just gotten to... Uh, 
campus in the fall and they're drawn into this movement and, and they're willing to risk their lives. They were preparing for these jail stints, these arrests, these sit-ins like a you know, soldier going to war that you, you might not come back, but you believe, as Lonnie told me, in the cause uh, so thoroughly that you're willing to do that. And so I think their courage, we, we ought to really, you know, sit with and appreciate uh, because it was, it was, uh, that was an amazing concept. It, it hadn't been tried, you know, people knew that this was done in India, civil disobedience, but they just thought it would be too suicidal to do it in the, in the American South. You wouldn't emerge from it. Um, but they, they believed, no, we, we will do this. And by doing it, by Americans seeing these pictures of you know, these college students uh, being arrested just for, you know, sitting down and asking for a hamburger, uh, that will make Americans who don't want to think about uh, racial injustice, who, who just think this is the way it is. And you, you're, you're forcing the public to uh, really uh, yeah, grapple with this injustice. And like, you know, this is wrong. I don't want to be part of this and, and kind of, you know, it, it persuading and bringing people to the side of realizing the urgency of the issue um, and, and realizing kind of what's right and wrong. And so it, so it's a, it was a powerful, powerful practice that for Lillian Smith to appreciate, it was so ahead of it, was so, so ahead of her time. And, uh, or, you know, I don't know if it's ahead of her time or whatever, but it's just, it was so rare, I guess is the better way to put it. There, there weren't a lot of other people, because what I saw also in, you know, the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, which was relatively moderate at the time, but they're saying, you know, hey, we, 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 we think that, you know, the, the students have a good cause here, but this is a really um, counterproductive thing they're doing. It's just going to create more acrimony. It's going to make it less likely their problems are addressed. And and it made me think of today how often people will kind of like, you know, maybe vaguely agree in, in theory that there are inequalities, um, but but often find some reason to not agree with activism that's going on with any chosen method of, of how uh, activists are, are, are trying to, you know, interject their issue into our, you know, our daily lives. So we can't just ignore it. So we can't just go about it. And, and so Lillian Smith uh, was able to say, no, what they're doing is right. Because again, and, and, the, and the technicalities of the law are, you know, are often the, the hang up here. I mean, look how the judge is using judge Mitchell is using this, uh, you know, license technicality as a pretext for such racial oppression to send someone to a dangerous prison for four months where that might end his life before, you know, Martin Luther King became the, the leader we, you know, would remember and know he'd be a footnote to history. And so the law can be used uh, in ways that really advance racism. And Lillian Smith saw that, hey, that, you know, in the same way, you know, Dr. King did and Harris did and Gandhi did that, you know, when a law is immoral, then, then there is this reason for civil disobedience and it will bring change um, so that uh, we can have moral laws. And, and so she, she totally got it. A lot of Americans didn't. They, you know, I, there, I found another account in the paper. They were going to have a, a debate between Dr. King and like um, kind of a white opponent of civil rights. And then he was like, no, you know, I'm not even going to do a debate with a lawbreaker. You know, so often when people talked about King in 1960, in this time, they'd always talk about how he's a lawbreaker. They couldn't get past that. Like he is breaking the rules. You can't break the rules to break the rules is bad. And so, you know, again, I, I just think that, that, that it should help us think about our own time and, and sometimes our own 
um, judgments of activists uh, instead mm -hmm. of being willing to um, engage on the truth they're helping reveal uh, about, you know, um, if they're out for a march and, and uh, you know, that that's in the legacy of, you know, Dr. King and, and, and these students of, of trying to make us live up to the ideals of our country for equality to, to make that, you know, lived experience for everyone. And you mentioned the Atlanta Journal Constitution. You know, Lillian wrote actually a letter to Eugene Patterson, the editor of the Atlanta Journal Constitution, October 22nd, 1960. And before I read from that, you know, all this makes me think too that flipping of the law, being arrested, being a badge of honor, basically now, you know, during the movement. And I don't remember who says it, but in Aver Duvernay's 13th, somebody mentions that, that it's a flipping of it, basically, mm -hmm. that you're saying these laws are unjust. I'm willing to be arrested for it. Mm -hmm. So just take me to jail because they were there knowing that, you know, if they refuse us, we're just going to jail. So they go yeah. in knowing they're going to going to jail. And the discussion of King being viewed as a lawbreaker, too. I look back to the Shreveport Times, which was my hometown paper in 1963, before the March on Washington, the title of whoever, whoever titled the editorial or the opinion piece, I don't know the author of it, said, you know, our laws must be upheld. And then mm -hmm. discussing every way that King is breaking the laws, mm -hmm. basically. But I yeah. want to go to Eugene to, to Smith's writing to Eugene Patterson. This is what she says, because she talks about, because you mentioned too the current moment. And she says this, she talks about, you know, why we, you know, what's what's wrong with what he's doing basically. And I want to read you a couple of things. She says, So today Atlanta's good name is blackened and is being pushed by many people in the world, nearly two billion of them, right along with Little Rocks. So the events in Little Rock, Arkansas. But she mm -hmm. says this a little bit later too. Let's take the one about nonviolent protests calling forth violence. Therefore, it should not be used so that nonviolent protest leads to violence, right? There is nothing more specious. Are you going to let a child's tantrums make you do the wrong thing? Are the hoodlums of Atlanta going to determine what can or cannot be used as a way of protest? They may decide, the Klan may, and the hoodlums may, that Blacks must not protest at all. They must be slaves, silent slaves to the cult of segregation. And of course, like you said, these are the same discussions we're having today, right? But are you going to side with the hoodlums? Are we going to say to Blacks, you mustn't do anything that will upset our psychotics and our criminals and our crackpots? Is this not a genuflection to insanity and crime that not one of us would want to make? I think this old argument, we used to hear it in, in the Gandhi days. In fact, the British imperialists used it. They were imperialists in those days, and they went about flogging Indians on the streets during their protests, putting their leaders in jail. Is about as solid as a marshmallow. The argument that nonviolence causes violence and must not therefore be used. How on earth can nations work for their rights without physical fighting, except by the use of mediation, symbolic protest, and a lot of give and take? I mean, we look back at the images of the nonviolent protest, and the violence is enacted, of course, by the ones who are standing against the protest or what the individuals are protesting. And she's pointing that out, right? Yeah, it, it's amazing. And, and I guess I, I want to be clear on one thing that, you know, when their king is arrested, it's because, you know, you, you're not allowed to go to that lunch counter downtown and, and that, that they were saying, you know, Rich is saying you're protesting. So, you know, so then, so they're saying he's breaking that law. And then, uh, but what was really important and in the, in the agonizing decision that, you know, chapter two takes you through uh, as students are pressuring King to decide that he's going to do this coming out of this SNCC conference where they're all chanting jail, no bail, jail, no bail is the idea of like, no, I'm not just going to 
then take bail and go home. Like I, you know, we will stay in jail. We will, uh, because we, you know, we cannot, you know, acknowledge, uh, the, you know, or, uh, affirm the rightness of the law that is wrong. And so, you know, we're willing to stay in jail to keep this in the public, uh, the forefront of the public's mind. Um, and, and, you know, again, so that's what was, you know, that was just, that was so new and, and, and so risky. And, uh, you know, when King moved home to Atlanta, it was interesting to see Governor Vandiver's statements where he talks about, well, everywhere Martin Luther King goes, you know, law breaking and, you know, riots and violence uh, go. And, and I just, th- that kind of thing still used today to try to uh, deflect and dismiss from what, you know, civil rights activists are, are trying to bring about and change it of, uh, you know, just blaming them for things that, you know, aren't, uh, that they are not doing. And so it's just funny that now we think of King as this like, you know, saintly figure, but those were the things that were said about him as he was leaving a movement of nonviolence. But they said, you know, well, if you're breaking this law, then you're causing all this and you're going to, you know, cause all this violence and, and uh, more law breaking. And so, you know, but, you know, again, Lillian Smith just got it and was just like there to support, to, to be an ally uh, in what he was doing and, and to use her talents in how uh, in her book, she could uh, dramatize uh, these, these, you know, questions of race and racism and, and help show the, the absurdities of it and, uh, and, and the values that, sh- you know, that we should find like love uh, to, to help us uh, pass them. So, uh, you know, she, she, she understood it. It was too rare, but uh, certainly calls to us today of, you know, how, what would Lillian Smith say these days? You know, how can we be a Lillian Smith, uh, you know, or how can I be a Lillian Smith uh, today is is certainly something I think about um, uh, that, you know, I, I, I think you read Nine Days and and you see the, the risks the characters take and you think, okay, what, you know, what more can I do right now? And I think that that's really important, you know, too, is that's why books like Nine Days are important. That's why knowing what Lillian Smith said, what Otis Moss said, what King said, mm-hmm. what Lonnie King said, are important because they weren't the first either. I mean, we could look back to Frederick Douglass, we look back even more, right? But the more that we kind of forget that history or we whitewash it, like you said, because now I look at King as, you know, I have a dream. And even that, that article from my paper, the Shreveport Times, was a week before the March on Washington. They were commenting on the March on Washington, right? And painting King in a, you know, as he's breaking the law, basically, and the march is breaking the law. So the ways we think about history, and then then we can see the ways that these things are not new. Yeah, know, too, and I think that's what's so important. Yeah, it's um, it, it it means a lot when people have said they read the book and it 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 felt relevant and it helped them think. It gave them you know new perspectives on things that are happening and helped them think about you know things they can do or just you know how how we 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 speak up sometimes and you know in situations and when we hear things or you know finding things in our daily life um you know ways that we can be outside of our comfort zones as uh you know i think lillian smith or harris wofford was so uh, you know i I think when we go to the past um when we look at history it it helps us with fresh eyes see things today and hopefully be inspired in in what we do today um uh, on, on shreveport for a second um it was really interesting, the connection uh, to your hometown, to the story in that one of the other black staff members of the Kennedy campaign had gone down there because uh, Harry Blake, who goes on to become 
a great civil rights leader of Shreveport. Uh, he was a field secretary uh, for, for um, uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and he is, you know, he and Abernathy are shot at. So as, as, as Wofford and the civil rights team on the Kennedy campaign are trying to establish a connection between King and Kennedy, King is like, well, you know, why don't you go down and, uh, you know, investigate what happened here? You know, is Harry Blake, you know, shot at it in his car. And so Frank Reeves is on his, uh, is, is this uh, coming back from there and is, uh, and they're like, oh, well, you know, the King was just arrested in Atlanta. Why don't you stop in and see what's happening there? And he goes and talks to King on the first day and, and King was like, you know, maybe you could, um, you know, have King uh, Kennedy do a, a telegram to Coretta. And Reeves passes that idea on to, to Harris Wofford and, and, and Louis Martin, who was kind of really the, the black strategic leader of Kennedy's uh, civil rights team. And anyway, all of this was history that I just hadn't seen in another book. And, and we found it in, a, in an account um, Frank Reeves gave a few years later that was in a book that I found in the Library of Congress. And, and I just thought it was more interesting context that the famous call from Kennedy to Coretta, you know, that, that it, it was actually showed that the genesis of the idea came from King himself uh, on that day. Um, you know, the idea got transformed. A call ends up being better, more human than a than a telegram. But uh, but but there was this kind of this interesting backstory. Uh, but anyway, but all connects back to Shreveport yeah. um, and the courage of uh, of uh, of Harry Blake, uh, who I guess passed away last year and but after an amazing life um and of change and so i just really appreciate what you're doing to share shreveport uh civil rights history which is so rich and fascinating and that i'm just learning about yeah and i, I think we, we need to end on this because one thing that you said earlier and i, I want to end with this then i quote from smith you point out like i said before that curry you know whatever role that she needed to take she would take right and mm -hmm. King is the same way. He defers mm -hmm. to Lonnie and to the yeah. students in Riches. People ask, you know, are you are you the leader? And he's like, no, it's them. And he points to them. Mm -hmm. And Lillian Smith's the same thing. That makes me think again to that letter to Marvin Rich. And that's kind of going to end on this. Mm. So she's writing to Marvin Rich again. And this is right after she says that I talked to Coretta last night. And we had a good and cozy talk during which I tried to reassure her not only my support and sympathy, but of that and many others. And then she goes on to say this, and this makes me think about the roles and the importance of various roles within movements and events such as this. I shall keep in touch with her and I shall write some of the students, many of whom I know. About three weeks ago, they spent Sunday here with me on the mountain, 10 of the leaders. And I'm assuming Lonnie King is involved with that because he talks about going up to visit uh, Lillian and Paula a couple of times, once with his wife. And he, he didn't, I haven't seen him mention this meeting specifically, but I would assume that this is, he was there. And we discussed many things. Then I was with them for the speech. So that was October 16th. And afterwards, some of them and I went to the black restaurant Pascal's for dinner, which you mentioned in the book, of course, too. I shall do what I can for them. And I'll see, I'll see if I can stir some of my white friends to help by writing letters to the store. So she knows what she can do, right? She knows that she can't go to jail. She mentions that in another letter too, that I know I can't go to jail. I mean, she's dealing with cancer here too. She's older as well. But there are these things that I can do. And to the mayor, so to Hartsfield, 
who so far is all right, although he seems to find it hard to understand that the young blacks really mean it. He tries to think of it as a kind of half serious lark, which should not be built up by white hysteria into something big. And then she says, I wrote to Dick Rich of Bridges today, a three and a half page letter. I think I made some strong points. I hope so. I sent a copy to the editors of the, of the Atlanta Constitution and the editor of the Atlanta Journal. Also a copy to Atlanta Mayor. I shall send a copy to Rich's chairman of the board tomorrow. So she knows what she can do, right? And she yes. takes that role when she does it. Yes. And I think that is so key that they're, they're you know, we ought not think about the things we can't do. We ought, we ought to think about the things we can do. And uh, there's right. always, you know, more we can do for, you know, civil rights and equality and, and, and justice and uh, in America against, you know, discrimination and prejudice and, and racism. So, uh, you know, I think Lillian Smith was so, yeah, really, you know, she didn't try to be, you know, out front, you know, leading the protest. That wasn't, you know, going to be her role. She found the things that she could do, supporting behind the scenes, using her network, uh, using her talents as a writer. Um, she found the ways that she, you know, could do that. And Connie Curry found the way that she could do it as you know observer and, and helping the administration of of uh of snick and and you know richard ramsey and in, in showing up and being willing to you know put his body on the line and you know harris wofford and being a strategist behind the scenes you know uh that you know that everyone there's role for all of us uh and uh and lillian smith is a great example of of finding the role that she could play and, and doing it and even king like i said too deferring to the students and not yeah, I found that, you know, really, um, uh, really moving that he over and over on October 19th, he, he, he keeps saying, you, you know, people are reporters are asking him questions. He's saying, you know, you should ask the students these questions. You know, this is their movement. They asked me to to come and, and I showed up and and they really appreciated that they felt like King respected their leadership of their movement um, and didn't try to kind of co-opt it or take it over, but really showed up for them, which brought more legitimacy and and uh, and and this was happening. They would have meetings with the uh, presidents of the uh, Atlanta, you know, black colleges who were really skeptical of what the, you know, their students going off to jail. And it meant a lot to them that King would show up at these meetings and he wouldn't even say anything, but just right. the fact that he was there and he is, you know, an emerging leader was so well respected and loved within the Atlanta community, black community that he grew up in, you know, again, that lent more credence to their, to their cause, um, you know, as they were trying to convince, you know, people within their own community that this was the right approach to take when there were, you know, these older leaders like King's father, who, you know, had been the ones, you know, getting certain accommodations from uh, the Atlanta power structure, but they were saying, you know, but you know, it's not enough. It's not a quality and, and we're going to, we're going to force that. And um, so, you know, King, he was a mentor uh, to them. And uh, you know, in, in the days in jail, it was amazing that Lonnie shared you know what that was like and and how you know they would it was like a non-violence retreat and they were talking about philosophy and and and, and religion and, and and the future course of the movement and how they were going to do all these things and and um so you know king really listened to the the students and 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 value their opinion which is again so important we have to listen to young people we often think we have all the answers but are we really willing to uh to to really listen without judgment and 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 believe in what they're saying and support them and um and and so the students loved King. And uh, I think maybe 
the moment in the book that might move me the most is, is how, uh, and I don't want to give it all away, but, uh, but essentially when uh, King is returning from Reedsville and how the students are all uh, out, uh, not in DeKalb County, on the border of Fulton County, not going into DeKalb, but waiting there, singing, we shall overcome in the moonlight. And, uh, you know, they were just, and, and then they go to Ebenezer for a big rally. And, uh, and there was a a young white journalist, Pat Waiters, who's working uh, for Atlanta Journal Constitution, and he um, he had never heard the song before, and he he gets out and and he hear and he sees these students who are just are are he was just suddenly so sure that they would win this fight that the for you know an equal South and and but just the the sight of them singing we shall overcome in the moonlight the song he'd never heard before it just brings him to tears and he would later leave journalism to go work for the southern uh, uh regional council and uh, devote his life to racial equality so it's just a a really powerful thing but you know they all showed up because their friend dr king you know his life uh, was imperiled uh, because he had shown up for them and uh, so you know that they uh, they loved him and they welcomed him home and uh, you know and for the those that i interviewed to help us tell the story you know their relationship to dr king is so so treasured and uh, and, and their accounts of him i think help any reader understand king in a more u- relatable way a human way of uh, king at this point being you know a, a young adult who was kind of figuring out his path for you know how he was going to make the change that people were looking to him that he hoped to make in America um, and how you know and, and so we can't all be Dr. King that's for sure no one can but we can be uh, you know the activists who show up and 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 are and are part of a movement and um, you know and, and that's what these students were you know that they might not have been activists one week before but they, they got involved and they went downtown uh, as part of the sit-in and they helped inspire King to do it. They helped make Dr. King become who he became and, uh, and they changed history. All right. Well said. Thank you for joining us today, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. And again, thank you for all you do to, to, to share history and literature uh, with students. Uh, that, that I love learning from you. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Touch. You as well. Make sure to go pick up Nine Days, The Race to Save Martin Luther King Jr.'s Life and Win the 1960 Election. And we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.